0: This is Guns and Butter. There's something
1: happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't
2: exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Uh, I always believe the so-called human nature is a product of the social climate and the social institutions. We are what we are because the social institutions in society.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dongping Han. Today's show, The Unknown Cultural Revolution. Dongping Han teaches history and political science at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina. He was a farmer and manager of a collective village factory during the Cultural Revolution in China. He is the author of The Unknown Cultural Revolution, Life and Change in a Chinese Village. Today's program is an edited version of a presentation that was part of Rediscovering China's Cultural Revolution, a three-day symposium at the University of California at Berkeley in November 2009, sponsored by Revolution Books and Monthly Review Press. Dongping Han discusses the importance of work, the educational system in Mao's China, the recent riots in Shenzhen province between the ethnic minorities, mainly the Uyghurs, and the Han Chinese, the famine during the Great Leap Forward, and describes his coming of age during the Great Chinese Cultural Revolution.
2: I'm not just talk about my book. I'm going to tell you my love story. And uh, when I teach in classroom... Tell my students that actually it's possible for people to work together to solve their problems, to improve their lives together. Most of my students said, "I don't believe you." I said, "You don't need to believe me, right? Because you have very different life experience." And in America, most people believe human nature are selfish right? And people are bored or selfish. They only care about themselves. They will not want to work unless they are forced to work. That's most American belief. So at Warren Wilson College, we have a work day. So every year on March 8th, it's a Wednesday normally, everybody come out to do some project on campus. About the majority of people come out, faculty, staff, students come out to work together. We do that every year. It's a big event on campus. And uh, when I tell my students during the cultural years, 17 million people, young people in the urban area, volunteered to work in the countryside with farmers. She said, I don't believe that. (laughs) Right? It must be between gang and work. Must be between gang. I said, why in China had to be between gang and work? Here, on the work day, we all came out to work. You don't have to have a gang because our nature, if we have a nature, we want to work. We are what we are through working together, right? When I tell my students the welfare program in this country actually deprives these people's humanity, they don't understand why. If a person can no longer work, do you think he's still human? There are many, many people began to think they become trash. They become burden of society. They lose their self-confidence. They lose their own dignity. Work is very important. Work is made what we are. I had a colleague one time. He invited me to his classroom to talk about Mao and, and communism. And when I came to class, he said, "Don't Ping, give me one minute. Let me get my class in order, then I'll attend to you. And he forget I was there. He began to talk about mall, how they control society. He said something shocked me. He said, mall will send people into the streets, neighborhood, and randomly shoot people. That's how mall control society. That's a professor of political science. I was so shocked. But no students in the classroom raise any question about that. That's how American students are taught about socialism and communism. Right? And uh, I grew up in the countryside. Both of my parents were illiterate. And uh, before I went to school, most of my cousins and uh, the children who were older than I was were not in school. And during the country years, the Chinese government empowered Chinese farmers to set up their own schools. The Chinese elites today were telling the Chinese people, telling the, the world, the Cultural Revolution was a national disaster, during which time education suffered tremendously. The truth of the story is, actually, the Cultural Revolution expanded educational reach to the countryside. And I did my research mostly in my own county, Jima County in Shandong Province. Before the Cultural Revolution years, there was only one high school in my county. There were 750,000 people in my county at the time. And the high school had only two classes each year. Each class had 30 students. So each year, only 60 students from that county were able to go to high school. Before the cultural revolution, 17 years before the cultural revolution, that high school only produced, graduated, 1,500 high school students. 800 of them left the village, left the countryside to go to college. And 700 others mostly go to work in the urban area. So there were 1,050 villages in my county. Most villages didn't have one high school student at the time. During the country years, during the 10 years, so-called national disaster my county built 89 high schools. From one to 89 in 10 years' time. Before the cultural revolution, we have seven middle schools in the county. By the end of 1976, we had 249 middle schools. Every village had a primary school. Everybody was able to go to school free of charge without exams. It's become an entitlement. Everybody was allowed to go to school free. And you know, in China, there are many, many scholars talking about school should be run by teachers or professional educators. But I think if you allow professors you ask professional teachers to manage education, education always suffer For a very good reason. Because the teachers think first about their own self-interest. That's what happens. They try to make education become their own privilege. They didn't want more people to receive the education. I looked through Chinese uh, record. Every time professional educators are in charge of education, education suffers. The only time exception is during the cultural years, when the farmers, when the workers were empowered to run their own school. And school flourished. And the poor people, the working class people, have a real access to education. And I was telling my son, I was so lucky I was growing up during the cultural years because the educational model at the time was so different. It was not like today in China. Students were burdened with exams every day, every week. And there were no weekends for for Chinese students. Why? Because they need to prepare themselves to pass the different exams all the time. And the school, the teachers are measured by the number of students they were able to send to college. Not about how much students learned actually. And during the country years, not only school expanded greatly, but also the, the format, the way of education was carried out is very, very much transformed. The students, when I was in middle school, was in part writing their own textbook. We go to the factories. We talk with the workers, engineers. We write a book on how to repair farm machines, internal capacity engines, how they were made, how they, were, how they were, should be repaired if something wrong. We talk with the farmers and develop our own textbook on agriculture. I was taught when I was in, in middle school, in high school, and how to farm, how to grow things. Every class in high school, in middle school, has an experiment field. And it's a part of our job every week to go to our garden, to look after our vegetables, to learn how to grow, how to plant, how to take care of. It's become a part of my nature. And now I grow about most of my own vegetables. Over the year, I grew about 40 kinds of vegetables and grain. I grew soybeans, corn, tomatoes, potatoes, everything. I do that at Warren Wilson College, try to demonstrate to the community how much you can do if you really care about the environment. Right? So when I was growing up in in the school system, There were no exams almost. There are no exams. The examination, if we had one, is always open book. And students were allowed to talk to each other to discuss the copy from each other. If you didn't didn't know before, you copied from others, you learn. Right? That's the most uh, uh, ideal exam. Yeah, before the cultural revolution, Many, many teachers used the, used the grade, use the marks as an instrument to control students in the classroom. And during the country years, that part was taking away. The students empowered to debate, discuss with teachers. I learned so much from that format of education. When I first came to the United States and I attended the University of Vermont, I was working for my masters uh, of history. One of my professors had a class on cultural revolution. And in the class, everybody said the Revolution was an educational disaster. I was so angered. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm I was a product of a cultural revolution. Right? Anyone who you want to come out? Let's let the competition see who knows more, right? (laughs) None of them dare to compete with me, right? None of them dare to. So that discussion about cultural disaster was ended there. And there are many, many Chinese young people grown up with that perception, the cultural failure. But the truth of matter, the cultural revolution trained a generation of people like myself not only empowered with books knowledge, but with a lot of knowledge about society, about real, real productive work. And I think China, the reason China was able to develop so well in the first 30 years, and I think if by comparison with China today, even though I think that China has a lot of problem, still China did much better than most other Third World countries.
0: You're listening to Professor of History and Author Dongping Han. Today's show, The Unknown Cultural Revolution. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Many people in this country, or in the world, like to pick on China. But they don't, they don't know how big progress China made over the 60 years. Right? And there are a lot of scholars in this country talking about China when they talk about you see, the famine in 1960 going the forward. They didn't know famine was commonplace in China before the Chinese Revolution. There are famine every year. They didn't know how, because Chinese Revolution, famine become very, very rare. And only happened once. Right? And it's because 100 years, unprecedented natural disaster in 100 years. The worst drought and the worst flooding in that three years. Yes, we had grain shortages. But because the communist government took very good care of the Chinese people, we actually didn't have a widespread famine during that three years. We had a lot of hunger, but most people survived. One of my professors got a huge grant, Guggenheim, to study the famine in China. I went with him. And his thesis, badly, miserable, the Constitution was for the Chinese people. But most farmers told him, without the government support, more people would have died. That's actually very well, well true. In my hometown, during the famine, I was five years old when the Great Forward famine took place. My village was able to eat the wild, dried wild vegetables from Yunnan province, southern China, three four thousand miles away. So the government shifted. it wild vegetables, and a relief grain from far away to help people survive. So the communist government did a lot for for the Chinese people. And partly because I think that the communist government enabled the people to work together, to organize them, and to work as a community, not just work for themselves. And uh, two days ago, one of the Chinese uh, most famous scientists, he was a rock scientist. He used to teach in this country, in California, uh, Institute of Technology of California. And in 1949, when the commons came to power, he wanted to go back. And the American government, the, the Secretary of the Navy said, I would rather kill him then allow him to go back, because his knowledge is worth five divisions. So eventually they arrested him for 15 days, then house arrested him for five years. Eventually he went back in 1955, and he helped China develop the rocket program. The satellite was sent to space in 1971. Was done by him and his colleagues. He became very, very famous in China. Everybody knew him. When he died, everybody, most people in China, particularly scientists, demanded the Chinese government give him a state funeral. But the government didn't do it. Why? Because he said something. I don't think the current government like him. He said he was excited only three times in his life. The first time was when he got back to China after five years of house arrest. The second time, in 1958, he was able to join the Communist Party. The third time was when the Chinese government in the early 50s ranked him as one of the five people, moved China. All the four others were workers, farmers, and soldiers. And he said he was very excited because he was able to be ranked as one of the person with the worker, with the farmer. That's what China was like. The intellectuals We consider it's a big honor to be ranked with the working class. People not work for themselves, for their own rank, for their own owners, but work to how to make the community, make the nation better. And in 1985, the new Chinese government, Deng Xiaoping's government, gave him a big honor as the the, the scientist who made the most contribution to the Chinese science and technology. When he got that honor, he said he was not excited. (laughs) Yeah. Because the only three time excited, he just mentioned that, right? And he also said something very, very well. Made me think a lot. He said, if China abandoned socialism, if China abandoned more than thought, Chinese nation will suffer, and the Chinese state will fail. At the time when he said, when he said that, most people didn't think very hard about what he meant. Looking back today, I think he was right. This summer, I was in Xinjiang, where the words rise. I was there on July 3rd, and the riots broke out on July 5th. And uh, it really really shocked me to see 50,000 people came out with big knives and axes, began to kill people. I never thought China had ethnic problems like that. And I thought a lot afterwards, I don't think that's an ethnic problem. It's a class clash. And most people said, is the people who are trying to kill the Han Chinese? And the Han Chinese try to kill the ethnic words?" It's not that simple. You know, the Xinjiang area is a minority region where the words live. There are 13 minority people living in Xinjiang. The world's one of the biggest. In the old days, when the enterprises in Xinjiang was owned by the state, in China we call it all people's ownership. When the state ran these enterprises, they made sure the world people were treated equally. They get equal employment opportunity, they got the same pay, they got the same benefit like the Chinese, Han Chinese, like myself. And the Han Chinese and the the ethnic minority worked together very well, like brothers. I was so moved when I was in Xinjiang this summer. On the one hand, the words were killing Chinese. There were a lot of old words came out. Shaking hands with Chinese were telling us, you know, we are brothers. We are brothers. And the people who are killing people are only minorities. Right? Of course, it's not that simple. The reason why the old words were able to tell the Han Chinese they were brothers, because they lived in the socialist time. They really, really lived, worked together like brothers. Care about each other like brothers. But today, it's a different story. In the last 30 years, most state-owned enterprises were privatized. The guy who was in charge of Xinjiang was a guy from my hometown, Shandong province. And his name is Wang Lequan. He had been number one leader in Xinjiang for 18 years. During this time, most state-owned enterprises become private property, and mostly owned by people from my, my province, actually. So the private capitalists from Shandong province had a very, very different hiring policy, practice. They would hire Chinese from my province first. If they couldn't find any Chinese from my province to work for them, they hire Chinese from other provinces. So the war people couldn't get employment anymore. If they didn't get a job, they were treated very, very differently. Because they didn't speak the same language. Because they didn't have the same culture. So they were mistreated. Right? So they have a resentment against the rich Han Chinese. Number one. Number two, in the old days, when the resources in Xinjiang was developed, it was developed for the benefit of whole Chinese people. And today, because these developers were the capitalists, they developed these resources for their own benefit. And the Xinjiang people had resentment against that too. That's why they rioted. The reason I see this is important is because I think this thing can happen anywhere in China. The class clash, the class contradiction in China has been intensified, and the capitalism. I think there is no way China will be able to survive along this capitalist path. The Chinese government tried very hard to suppress people's discussion of the Cultural Revolution. They didn't allow people to talk about it. I think the reason they were able to get away because the government never Don been said, we will not discuss that issue. That's what happened in China. But as things become more and more, the gap between the rich and poor becomes bigger and bigger, I don't think the Chinese government's ability to suppress this will be very, very long. And Larry this afternoon asked me, there are more in China? Yes, of course there are moist in China. The majority of Chinese people are moist. Why? The working class, the farmers, the workers, who enjoyed free education, free medical care, lifelong job security, want to get their benefit back. Every year I take students to China. They were always amazed to see the long lines outside Muslim. The Chinese working class still have fond memories of the cultural revolution, of the socialist practice in China. And uh, I think I'll stop here if you have any questions.
0: You're listening to Professor of History and Author Ping Han. Today's show, The Unknown Cultural Revolution. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: Maybe you could give us a sort of on-the-ground picture of the kind of the new values that were being created in the village in which you lived. In other words, how did people actually change their thinking about each other and caring for each other, or how the values of people you know, went through changes during the Cultural Revolution.
2: Okay. Uh, I always believe the so-called human nature is a product of the social climate and the social institutions. We are what we are because the social institutions in society. And uh, what changed the people's uh, mindset or their behavior during the Cultural Revolution years is because people the government, and the community care about each other. And uh, in this country, the reason why we are selfish is because nobody cares about us. If we don't care about ourselves, nobody will care about you. But during the cultural years, in the socialist climate, you don't need to care about yourself. Other people will care about you. They will care about you as much as they care about themselves. I think I remember I, t- I told a story uh, one time is uh, my friend, and uh, he was two years older than I was. He's a very very smart person, but he had a problem. He couldn't get up in the morning. <laughs> there are a lot of young people like that. I couldn't get up myself too. I was able to get up because my mom, my father, wake me up every morning. So every morning I came out to work. And one day, this, this friend of mine didn't come out. The production team leader said, him, go to wake him up. So I went to wake him up. I yelled at him outside his house. The first day, he answered. Oh, I'll be there in a minute. Right? And he came out the first day. The second day, the production team leader said, go to wake him up. So I yelled, he didn't answer. I came back to the leader and said, he didn't even answer this morning. I said, go in, wake him up. So I went in his house. And his grandma said, the child needs sleep. His grandma and mom were cold at the time. So I came back to the, told the leader, so his grandma was upset. And the leader said, don't care about, mind about his grandma. Go to wake him up. <laughs> so I actually dragged him up from the bed. And uh, I did that almost every day when I was in the village. And this guy is a very, very intelligent person. When he was up working with us, he worked very hard. Right? He worked very hard. So every day we dragged him along. And he did fine, he was very, very popular with, the, with the, his peers because he knew how to play an instrument and he was able to tell jokes, things like that. He did very well, Get married. A lady, he was very, very handsome, very tall. And he liked to drag me in front of the mirror to show. He was taller than I am, he was more handsome than I am. But that's what he was, he was socially so not, not smart, really awkward. But in 1982, when the land was divided up, when the collective was disbanded, nobody woke him up anymore. And uh, he got into a problem. And his wife left him. And uh, he became developing mental problems. How was this my belief? If a person were deprived of his right work, Together with others, he will develop mental problem. Right? So he was sick. So in 1998, I went back home to the village again. I saw a person walking naked on the street. In the distance, I said, "That's him." So I was running after him. He saw me. He ran back home, and I followed him into his house. I said, oh, "Dying, that's you." Naked? Walking naked on the street? He said, yes. I don't want to leave. Life is not good. I'm miserable. Right? So I tried. I said, I said you see, Diane, don't think negatively. Think about the positive things, right? Why couldn't you, right, start something new? I said, you see, there are a lot of people in the, in the village playing instruments, right, at night. Why don't you join them? You are very good with your instrument, right? Uh, I said, don't want to see any people. Don't want to see others. I said, you can you can paint. You used to be a very, very, good painter. I said, well, remember you were, you were able to paint horses very well, right? Why don't you paint? Uh, he said, no, I just don't want to do anything like that. I said, I'll be in the, in the wallet for another 10 days. I want to buy a painting from you. So do one for me. He said, okay, I'll do one for you. And uh, the next day he came to my house. He said, don't you know, I cannot do it. Give me one year. Next year when you come back, I'll, I'll give you a painting. I said, I told him, he said, you know, I'm not interested in your painting. I'm more interested in you. I want you to really stand up to live like a person, right? He said, yeah, I promise you, I will. But after I came back home here... Three months later, my sister wrote to me and said he committed suicide. And when I, read that, when I read my sister's letter, I cried. cried for a long time. I knew if the collective didn't disband, and if, if the village was still working as a community, somebody would help him along. And he would not need to kill himself. But nobody cares after the collective was disbanded. I, I really want to see a few more things about that, right? The, the, the reason why Chinese society became like that during the certain time is because people care about each other. If you have a problem, the village community will come to help you. When my father worked at the time, whenever he was sick, the factory management will use their only truck to come to my, my village, to pick him up, to send to him to the hospital. That's not a tradition, that's a socialism. And uh, whenever it rains in my village, for example, you don't need to wake people up. Everybody rush to the collective threshing ground to take care of the grain, the public collected the grain there. When it snowed, everybody came out to clean the street without asking. This is how the community worked. So it's a social climate that made China what it was like during the time. Okay.
1: Yes, thank you. I'd just uh, like to know what you see to be the essential elements for the creation of a constructive social revolution?
2: Uh, I think that, that has uh, a lot to do with uh, with Mao's uh, writing and Mao's aspiration as a revolutionary. I don't know whether you ever heard of Mao's writing called Serve the People. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think for the Chinese people, for people like me, more people like my mom, my father, who were illiterate, Mao's language is unbelievably easy to understand. And there's one famous Chinese linguist. He said most writing is very, very, unique. For scholars, his writing is very, very high style. But at the same time, it's the language common people can understand. And I can still recite most uh, uh, article, that one, to certain people. And uh, that article itself, most people don't understand what communism is about. And from most perspective. A communist is somebody who's dedicated for the service to the common people. The reason why the Communist Party, Communist Revolution in China was so uh, fascinating is because they believe they are sacrificed themselves to liberate 95% of the Chinese people they are working not to, for their own benefit, but to work to make sure the oppressed get what they deserve in society. And uh, during the country years, they developed a, a very different standard. Uh, for example, county magistrate, who used to be a very, very big official in the county, right, were asked to work with the farmers 200 days a year. At that time, you saw county officials on bikes every day working with the villagers in the field. And the community leaders were asked to work 300 days a year, and the village leader was supposed to work with farmers almost every day, except when they are they need to go to meetings. So it's a comprehensive transformation. I mean, today many people write about talking about how the government persecutes intellectuals by asking them to work with the farmers, right? But at times, under the social climate, there are many, many people who are seeing this persecution today. At that time, thought the revolution empowered them as well. To come out of their um, university to work with farmers, they considered it was revolution as well. You know, professors, doctors used to only work in urban area. Now the government encouraged them, right, to integrate with the working class. So it's a different social climate. I think it's, a, it's not a one thing, it's many, many other things, but it's a, a social climate of working for others as an honor, as a a really, really great honor to be able to help others and uh, to do selfless things for the community and for the public. That's what happened.
0: So, Professor, from my understanding, you were very young when you were part of organizing a Red Guard unit in your village. So as a young person during the time, what were some of the subjects, if you can remember, that people were widely debating
2: the the revolution I, I would always consider the revolution as an empowerment movement. Before my talk, somebody asked me said, "Mao used the revolution to consolidate his own power, right?" And I don't I don't agree with that. I think Mao's power is very very solid. At the time when he started the revolution, he was so solid. I mean, most people didn't understand. The reason why Mao was so popular, so powerful, because not because the government didn't allow people to criticize Mao, because your neighbor, your friends, will not tolerate you criticizing Mao. Why? Because Mao's policies represented the best interest of Chinese working class, 90% of them. If you criticize them all, you're criticizing them. You are hurting them. So they will not allow you to talk about that. The reason I said that cooperation was empowerment is more because Mao more began to say, if the working class not empowered to take control of the state, then the revolutionary accomplishment of the Chinese revolution achieved, right, could be taken away by the elites very easily. I'm not just telling from you see, uh, my, my own speculation. Actually, there's evidence to prove. more wrote on the margin of the, there's a book he was reading, the Sued Political Economy textbook. And in that textbook, he talked about how the workers in a socialist society enjoy the free Medicare, enjoy the right to work, and enjoy many, many things, right? but more said on the margin, if the working class people don't control the state, all the socialist benefit could be taken away by the elites. That's proved in China already, right? So I think the contribution was made to empower the working class, to empower the people, to take the state matters into their own hands. And Mao said the culture was to, for people to educate themselves, to empower themselves. So he was willing to go through all the chaotic period in the beginning, allow the young people to criticize their leaders.
0: You're listening to Professor of History and Author Ping Han. Today's show, The Unknown Cultural Revolution... I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Let me tell you what I did when I was 11 years old at the time. And uh, I felt so empowered because most said students can criticize the teacher, can criticize the principal. And I wrote two big character posters when I was only in third grade. <laughs> Why? Before the cultural revolution, I had... a my family had a knife. It's my grandfather went to France during World War I to work there. He took home as a gift. Very valuable for the family. I took it to school. And I didn't know the school didn't allow you to bring a knife to school at the time. <laughs> There's no rule like that. And so the teacher saw the knife. He took it. And uh, my father asked me, where's the knife? Where's the knife? He knew I was very naughty. He he knew nobody else in the family took it. Only me. So I had to lie. I said I didn't touch it. My father didn't believe me. He beat me again and again. So at the beginning of the conversation, I wrote a big poster. Where's my knife? (laughs) 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 And uh, the teacher, actually, the teacher was very upset. She didn't rebel. I didn't get my knife back, (laughs) by the way. But I was able to write out. Where's my knife? And uh, confronted her. I feel so empowered. <laughs> I feel so empowered. And uh, my friends and I and, uh, publish a small pamphlet. We use uh, the stencil paper. You write on, 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 with an eye of pain, right? And you print and distribute on the marketplace. You feel empowered. You can do that. And in my middle school at the time, there was about 13 newspapers published by students. It's very, very empowering. I mean, I see these people today in China. They are the mainstay of the Chinese society because they are an empowerment uh, experience during the culture years. You started your talk with a very, very exciting uh, observation about uh, people not being forced to work, that people will work uh, for social need and so forth building a revolutionary movement. But I think Mao hesitated on that question, as the socialist movement did
0: generally in, the, in those days, and didn't go as far as the idea
2: that I understand that millions of uh, comrades on the left of, of Mao argued for the abolition of the wage system, the abolition of uh, wage slavery, in yeah. whatever form it takes. Um, I don't quite get what your, what your main point is, but I would argue... From my own experience, and from what I know about Chinese government policy towards people who refuse to work, is people uh, who refuse to work still get their shares of grain in the village? The Chinese uh, commune system, for commune system in the rural area, the commune is for the countryside, all the production, the grain, the harvest was distributed on a 70% of the grain was distributed on a per capita basis. So whether you worked or not, as long as you from that village, you get 70% of the grain. Only 30% was distributed on the basis of how much you worked, right? That 70% was enough for you to get by, right? In the factory, my father worked in a state-owned factory, and uh, I know there's always one worker in that factory who was not happy with the management and was uh, refused to work, but he always get paid, he always get paid. For example, I think that's also a philosophical argument more made. In 1949, when Mao came to power, Mao made a decision to keep all the people who used to work for the Nationalist government, their job. All the former state uh, employees for the Nationalist Party were kept by the new government. When people argued, why can we afford to keep them, to pay them, right? Mao asked, can we afford not to keep them? If you don't give people a job to work to make living, they will do something else to hurt you. Right? I always argue unemployment is the worst waste of human resources. Right? Don't you think in this country the reason we have so, such a big prison population, 5% of the world population, versus twenty-five percent world prison population. It has a lot to do with unemployment. When people don't have a job to make a living, they do something else to get by. And that's what they can hurt society. I think there are a lot of good things in the so called peasants moral economy argument, right? You want to make sure everybody in your community survives through legitimate means. Because if you don't, they will hurt you. And I think socialism is based on a peasants' moral economy model. To make sure everybody do what they can and get what they need to survive. If you don't, you dehumanize them, you dehumanize yourself. And in the capitalist system, of course, you think, see, 5% unemployment is optimal, unemployment. Because that's how capitalists need, in order to make more profit. But I think as, a, as a, a human race together, we face so much environmental challenge today, I don't think we can survive as we do now. We need a, a different paradigm. During the Chinese cultural years, because the social economy is different, I'm telling my, my teacher, for example. This teacher who, who took my knives, right, had completely changed during the cultural years. He and I worked together. And in a way, our human nature, our behavior at least, is dictated by what the society encourages. Um, I mean, some people, when they criticize the cultural revolution, they think the Chinese society should be perfect at the time. Of course, no society can become perfect, can never become perfect. Um, but I, I personally feel, I began to think, the Chinese uh, rural community, the commune, uh style of uh, organization, is some kind of closed to a commie society. And everybody did whatever they could, and get what they ever need from the community. Of course, according to Marxist theory, we need abundance. We need to see the production to um, progress to a level we have a huge abundance. I don't think we can ever reach that level. We will never be able to produce enough to satisfy everybody's greed. But we definitely have enough economic productive power to produce enough to make sure everybody has what they need to live adequately. Right? And from that level, I still think the Chinese Cultural Revolution on the whole, if my village, if my county was the typical example of the Chinese society. I'm very happy with it. I think it's close to a perfect society. We were poor, no doubt, compared with the United States. But we didn't have a homeless population, we didn't have drug abuse, and uh, we have free education, free medical care. Everybody had a home. Everybody worked together. There were some problems. We didn't have crime almost. I was telling my, 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 my sister at home this, uh, this summer when I went back, I said, you know, the you know that 13 years, when I was 9 years old, I started working in the village. I started working in the collective when I was 9, on Wednesday afternoon, Friday afternoon, and Sunday, until I left the village when I was 23. I said we didn't have one crime in the whole village during that time period. I even didn't remember who died during that time. Why? The Chinese life expectancy doubled during most time, from 35 years to 69. We were 20 years ahead of India in life expectancy. So what do we expect? a third world country, a poor country, was able to do that much, it's surprising for me. I didn't know, I didn't understand at the time. I understand more after I left China, see what's going on in the U.S. When I first came to the United States, I lived in Burlington, Vermont, northern Burlington. And all of my neighbors were poor people. My next door neighbor were on welfare. And uh, they were much younger than I was. They had four sons, and they both were illiterate. They were drinking on, uh, beer on porch every day. But their four children came to my house, asked me, can I have a piece of Chinese bread? Every day. I was so shocked. That's not America I thought what it was. When I moved to Boston, I rented a... Uh, a cabinet from a rich landlord, and one day he asked me, "What do I think about America?" I said, "I'm not impressed." <laughs> he was so angry. He was so upset. He was upset. I didn't realize how upset he was. He said, "Why?" I said, "Because you have so many abundance, but at the same time, so many homeless people, so many hungry people." I was struck. I said, and. Uh, at the end of the year, he asked me to, to move, right? <laughs> uh, this guy had a, a daughter who was my son's age. And uh, my son was uh, six years old at the time. They have a four-year-old boy. And uh, and his name is Edward. I said, I don't like Dong Ping. I don't like Dong Ping. I was always wondering why he didn't like me. I didn't do anything to him. <laughs> so I figured out maybe... That's what his father was talking at home. I hate rich people, said. He said, I have a problem with rich people. <laughs> right? And uh, yes, I do. If there's a poor people, I don't think the rich people should help that much. The Chinese government today, I mean, not the Chinese government, they released releasing some information today. We are in a financial crisis now. Right? In the world. The Chinese millionaires, their, their assets doubled. The Chinese government, we think, it's a good thing, right? While their wealth doubled, how many people suffered as a result? I'm very proud of most China because we didn't have prostitutes, because we didn't have drug abuse, because everybody had a job because everybody takes care of. Even though we were poor, I'm very, I don't feel the same way about China today. Right. To see the environmental degradation, to see my hometown, the river was so polluted, to see many, many poor farmer's children were no longer able to go to school. When poor farmers, when they were sick, they were just waiting to die. That's just got me. I just feel I couldn't identify with the country as strongly as I, as I can with most yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. exactly there.
0: You've been listening to Dong Ping Han. Today's show has been The Unknown Cultural Revolution. Dongping Han teaches history and political science at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina. He was a farmer and manager of a collective village factory during the Cultural Revolution in China. He is the author of The Unknown Cultural Revolution, Life and Change in a Chinese Village, published by Monthly Review Press. Today's presentation was part of Rediscovering China's Cultural Revolution, a three-day symposium at the University of California at Berkeley in November 2009, sponsored by Revolution Books and Monthly Review Press. More information on this event is available at www.revolutionbooks.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at Faulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628.
1: Evolution of the mind. If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divide we will fall. Because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cypher and be on the lookout a sniper trying to steal your life you know what i'm saying look what just yourself for peace give thanks live life and release you dig me